Hi, my name is Stephen Luna. I'm the lead pastor of MWC Church. We're so glad you chose to join us for this podcast. My prayer is that it would be a blessing in helping you grow closer to Jesus and help you grow in your faith. Enjoy this week's sermon. We're in this series called Rebranded, where we've been looking back in important parts of Scripture. Man, that's a tongue twister. We've been looking back at important parts of Scripture where we see the Lord, whenever he made a change in someone's life, whenever he, he, he changed or shifted their focus, it was oftentimes meant with a change and shifted name, where he would completely transform them. The first week, we looked at the story of a boy by the name of Simon, who was a disciple of Jesus, and he and his 11 other friends who were disciples of the Lord, followed him to this region known as the gates of hell. In other words, it was known as Caesarea Philippi in, in scriptures. And, and, they, and Jesus marched them to this, this horrible, terrifying place to ask them a very specific question. He looked at them square in the eyes and he asked them the question, who do you say that I am? Here we are in a cave where, where people uh, worship these all their false idols, where they, where they experience demonic oppression, and, and I'm, I'm looking you in this cave, in this cavern, and I'm asking you this question, who do you say that I am? And I could just imagine the homeschooled kids, they never stepped out like a foot outside of their, like their backyard, so they were terrified, and this is the first time Jesus brought them there, and he's trying to tell them something like, listen, nothing, not, when I'm around, there is no power greater than me, like you can trust me. So Jesus takes them here, asks them this question, and they're looking around, and Simon's eyes are fixated on Jesus, and he answers that question and says this, you are the Messiah. In other words, he's saying, you are the savior of the world. I can look at what's happening around me and I don't have to be afraid. You are the savior of the world. You are the son of God. And Jesus goes, ding, 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 Simon, son of Jonah, you've answered correctly. And what was revealed to you was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. You didn't figure this out on your own strength, but this was the, the Lord's doing. God has revealed this to you. And he says this, by your confession of faith, you, Simon, by your confession of faith, you are now Peter. And on this rock, on this confession of your faith, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I mean, it was just a beautiful story. So in that moment, by a correct confession of who Jesus is, Jesus brings transformation. He changed Simon to Peter. Peter was now from that point forward called the rock. The, not the wrestler, but the rock, right? Like, that's, what, that's what Peter stands for, is the rock. And, uh, you know, he did the people's eyebrow. It was great. Uh, but, but so he was known as, as, as the rock. So we said this, likewise, as we are entering into the season of rebranding, before we ever talk about what the name is, we want to talk about what we are about and why we're doing this. And we've said this, we are a church just like Simon became Peter by a right confession of faith, we are a church that is, that is saying this, we exist. Our primary purpose for existing is this, we exist for Jesus. We exist for Jesus. It'll be reflected in the name that we are assuming, and it'll be reflected in the functions of this church. Our rebranded church will exist for Jesus in name and in function. Everything we do will be for the magnification, for the lifting up of Jesus, because he gives us a promise. He says this, that when I am lifted up, I will draw all the world to myself. 
when we lift him up in our services, when we make him the sole focus, because I think sometimes we, we try, or at least Christian culture will be guilty of this, where we add Jesus as, as maybe a secondary dish, where we're just like, oh man, we have lots of great kids' ministries, and we have lots of these the other way. Coffee exists for Jesus. It's all about him, because he is the one that transforms. Listen, I like coffee, but coffee has never saved me. It's Jesus that saves me. It's not the the special ministries or the conferences, although those things have a place and they're great and they're excellent, unless they are surrounded and and, and just literally uh, uh, filled with Jesus, they are not gonna have that strong of an impact. So we've said this, we're saying this from the very beginning, our church exists for Jesus. He will change and transform you like nothing and no one else can. Jesus, amen? So we said this, our church exists for Jesus. The second thing we said is we exist Yes, for Jesus, but secondarily, we exist for all people and all nations. That when we look at Scripture, we see that the heart of God is to gather people from all nations to himself. That every single color, creed, every single tribe, every single language, every single tongue, the Bible calls it, is called to magnify and lift up the name of Jesus. So we have said this, we want to be a church that is intentional about that. I think it's so easy to get caught up in the things that you prefer and the things that you enjoy, and and sometimes we will end up making churches that that are just suited for, for one specific type of person. But we have said this, if we are going to be a church that greatly magnifies God, we must be intentional about saying we exist for all nations. We exist for every single person to come in this place. By The first step is doing this, by extending belonging. We want people to know they are loved, that they are cared for, that we want them here, that we, just, we, we anticipate their arrival. So we have said we are a church that exists for all people and all nations. The same way Saul, who was once a, a we can make the argument that he was a, a, a Jewish nationalist, right? He was all of one uh, fault that, that the Pharisees, especially a person like, the, uh, like Saul would have had, one fault of theirs is that they would have had a racial bias. They, they had a name for themselves, the Jews, and then they had a name for everyone else, the others. He called them Gentiles. And, and Saul was an individual who struggled with, with making Israel greater than every other person. In fact, they said this, if you wanted to come to God, you needed to first become a Jew, and then you could become closer to God. But Jesus came and preached a completely contrary message. And he said this, if you want to come to God, you don't need to become a Jew first. If you want to come to God, you need to come to me. You need to come to Jesus. Because I am the way, the truth, and light. And no one can come to the Father except through me. It was a beautiful message. So when, when Jesus, when that message grabbed a hold of Saul, Saul embraced the name Paul. He literally shifted his identity and embraced a greater one so that he could minister the mission of God, which is to reach all the nations. Paul was a great Roman name, not a good Jewish name. It was a great Roman name. Saul was a great Jewish name, but Saul embraced the name Paul to help him accomplish the mission God had called him to. And we are saying, likewise, our church, Maranatha Worship Center, is a beautiful name. It's a, it's a Greek word that, that means come our Lord or, or come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's literally pointing us to the, to the second coming of Christ, of the moment when Christ will come and return. And it's just a beautiful time. It's a beautiful name, but it's not helping us accomplish 
the mission God has called us to. And you may be saying, well, why not, Pastor? Because whenever I call a pizza place in town to order pizza for our meetings, they, they call us Marinara Worship Center. And not because they're trying to be mean, but because Maranatha means nothing in our context. So you better believe that the name we are assuming, the identity we will embrace, is going to help us better communicate that we exist for all people in all nations. Amen? Amen. And finally today, I want to talk to you about this. We are a church that exists to create transformation. We are a church that exists to see transformation. Everybody say transformation. And no, that's not going to be the name of our church. You can keep guessing. People have been sending me text messages. Pastor, is it this? You said this in your sermon. And I just leave those that exist to see transformation. Transformation is a hard thing to see, is it not? Uh, has anyone ever just stood in the mirror and just watched the pounds shave off? No. Transformation, I wish, that'd be great. I mean, no matter what they tell you on those late night infomercials, they always get you. They see somebody just like, just distraught and just like, uh, just a big old uh, bimbo just dropping stuff. And then they, they get on this weight plan and like in six hours, they're just like chiseled and it's just crazy and they, they lie to us. But, but transformation does not come easy. In fact, I'd say this, everything that experiences transformation comes with a great deal of disruption, discipline, and discomfort. Everything, everything that experiences transformation comes with a great deal of disruption, discipline, and discomfort. There is nothing that you can see in the natural world or in the physical world or even in the spiritual world that has experienced transformation. Nothing came easy. In fact, if you, even if we look through, through society and through culture, if you remember the first time a smartphone was released, uh, do you, do you, everybody thinks that the first smartphone was the iPhone. No, the iPhone was the most successful smartphone, but the first smartphones, maybe you know this, and, and it's all right to date yourself this morning, maybe you remember the Palm Pilot, anybody, any show of hands, anybody have a Palm Pilot? Yes, oh geez, yeah, you guys had some Palm Pilots. Anybody have a, a Blackberry? And all the youth are like, did they have Instagram on that? No, no, they didn't. They didn't have that yet. Uh, they had Snapchat? No, they didn't have that. Uh, so, so these smartphones had, if anybody remembers it, it had a little tiny screen and thousands of buttons. And you thought you were the coolest guy on the block because you had thousands of buttons on your phone. Normally, people just had like numbers, but no, you had letters and you had arrows and you had a, uh, an email and you could just like, access that. It'd take you about 12 minutes to get to it, but man, you were, you were cool. You had a smartphone. And then a man by the name of Steve Jobs, the CEO of Apple, released a different kind of iPhone or a different kind of smartphone that didn't have thousands of buttons. In fact, it only had uh, one button, and that was the main button, and it was all a giant screen. And not just that, and you know what? The world hated it. We all think like, oh, we're all cool now because we all got iPhones, and everybody has them. And we all, but the first iPhone, we hated it. We were like, where are the buttons? And why can't I take off my battery? Like, like, like these were things that were important to us. And now we're just like, we, I haven't seen a button in, in, in months and years, right? Uh, but the reality is, is that created disruption. In order to bring transformation that we all adopted, it took a great deal of disruption. Recently got my gallbladder removed in Mexico. Crazy story. I'll tell you about it another year, another time. It's kind of crazy. But uh, so I had my gallbladder removed and 
the doctor told me, hey, you're not going to be able to work out for about 12 weeks. And, uh, you know, me being the, the very uh, regimented and, and disciplined individual that I was, I just fell to my knees and began weeping because I loved, I loved the gym. I loved waking up early. And I was like, no, right? Uh, and uh, actually, I was like, yes, right? Like, uh, all right, doctor's orders. I guess I'm not going to the gym for a while. And because uh, the reality is I only go so my wife would like me. And uh, um, so the doctor said, 12 weeks, you, you, can't, you can't go to the gym. And I said, oh, okay, doctor, I'll, I, will, I will follow your orders, right? Uh, so I, I don't go to the, the gym for 12 weeks. And then finally, the doctor's like, all right, the 12 weeks are up. You can go to the doctor or you can go to the gym. And my wife wakes me up one more. She's like, hey, you can go to the gym. <laughs> and uh, I go to the gym. And I've been at the gym for two weeks now. And can I just say this? Uh, literally, I'm not, I'm not being grotesque here. Uh, my butt is sore, literally, literally. My glutes, my gluteus maximus hurts, and uh, it's formation, and I'm fault of discipline. I want to experience physical transformation, and I enjoy the, the, the physical transformation that takes place and the, the mental and the chemical stuff that happens in the brain. Like, I enjoy that stuff, but in order to experience transformation, it requires disruption to my sleep. It requires this amount of discomfort. If you want transformation, if we are going to be a church that desires transformation, that sees transformation, we need to welcome discomfort. We need to embrace discipline, and we need to long for disruption. And I believe that the Lord loves to do this. There was a time, let me, let me take you back to the 1990s, a time when UFC wasn't the million-dollar powerhouse it is today. Uh, it used to be a really weird place. The UFC in the 90s, if anybody remembers the UFC in the 90s, it was a really weird place. They would have 400-pound sumo wrestlers uh, fight 120-pound taekwondo guys. And it was just like, it was a fun place, but it was a really weird place. Like, it wasn't now where, like, everyone's, everyone's cut and looks the same, and you can't tell anybody apart except for, like, how tight their shorts are, right? Like, like that's the only way you can tell them apart nowadays. But back then, it was just like you had one completely different body type, fighting another completely body type. And it was, it, was, it was fun, but it was a weird place. And this was right after the uh, WWE wrestling was ousted as being fake and nobody liked it anymore and everyone was kind of falling off. And if you wanted to be somebody who watched any uh, uh, athletic fighting or sporting event, you had to watch boxing. My family, as growing up, my family was big into boxing. We loved it. In fact, boxing, uh, I was thinking about this, talking about this with a friend. Boxing is the last sport where they tolerate any type of racial bias. Because uh, growing up, obviously, I grew up in a Mexican household, and my family would always cheer for the Mexican. And I had black friends, and they would cheer for the black guys. We loved each other. We were great friends. But it wasn't racist or it wasn't biased at the time. If you're a black, to go for the black guy. Or if you're a Mexican, to go for the Mexican. If you're a white, to go for the white. It was just the way people did things. It's weird now, but back then, it was, it was completely acceptable. And uh, you wouldn't do that in baseball. Like, that would be super weird in baseball. But in boxing, it was all right. So my family, they always cheered for the Cesar Chavez, the Oscar de la Hoya. They, they, they cheered for these guys. And it was just like somebody would come out with a Mexican flag, and we'd all be going crazy. And uh, in order to watch the fight, they were on pay-per-view, but we never paid to view anything. We would climb up those, those, like, those little tall towers and break into the cable box and run a long cable into our basement. And, and we'd get every single person in the neighborhood, all of our friends. We would only watch the main card, the main bout. And what we would do leading up to 
to that is my uncles would give us boxing gloves and we only had one pair and I would get the left one because I'm lefty and my cousins would get the right one because they're righty and they would just say, go, right? Like somebody had a, a bell and they would ding it and we would just be throwing haymakers. Like, like the, I'm telling you, like I, I'm not a fighter anymore. I'm a lover, not a fighter. But my first fight was abysmal because all I did was this, poof, just throw my left arm around. Uh, and, and, and we would do this and then until somebody would cry, and then finally, it would be the main fight, and we'd watch the main event, and we would go crazy. We'd go crazy for, for even, like, Mike Tyson was, was, was fun to watch, and uh, Evander Holyfield, at least until he bit the ear of Evander Holyfield. Then we stopped watching him, and we went on the, the Holyfield bandwagon. Like, we loved boxing. But our favorite boxer was not a Mexican guy. He was a Filipino by the name of Manny Pacquiao. Anybody know who Manny Pacquiao is? Got a picture of him right here. I want to show him to you real quick. If we had the conversation of who was the most, uh, the greatest boxer of all time, I think we wouldn't say names like Muhammad Ali or Sugar, Sugar Ray Leonard. We, we would bring up all of these different names that would come to the conversation. We could be here for hours to answer the question, who was the world's greatest? But if we asked the question, who was the most transformational boxer? By that, I mean, who was the one who endured the most physical change to their bodies in order to experience the most success? Who was the one who changed their tactic, who, who changed their style the most, who was most transformed and experienced the greatest amount of victory, the obvious answer would be this, or two weight classes, because it's that, because Manny Pacquiao would fight not just in one or two weight classes, because in boxing they have very strict weight classes that are usually about six pounds. If you are out of your weight, when it comes to weighing, you can't even fight, you automatically lose. But there were, they have these very specific, drawn-out weight classes. There's about uh, 20 of them in, in, in championship boxing. A athlete, a transformational boxer, one who would change their physique, like Manny Pacquiao, you would sometimes fight in one or two different weight classes. But this guy, Manny Pacquiao, didn't fight in one or two or just one or two. He fought not just in three or four or five or six or seven or eight, but he fought in nine different weight classes. And to us, we're like, oh, yeah, I, I, I used to be in nine different weight classes too. Like, <laughs> since I've been married, I've been at least 12, right? Like, like, but it is something to say when you're a boxer, and if you watch boxing, you know that each weight classes have different tactics. Like the smaller, lighter guys, they're all about punches thrown and punches landed. There's this percentage that they're shooting for, a ratio that they're looking at. But the bigger guys, the tanks, the heavier weights, they're, they're not throwing that many punches, but they're throwing haymakers. I mean, they're, they're more about landing square, strong punches. And Manny Pacquiao fought in nine different weight classes. In fact, he held at one point the longest reigning champion in a five linear weight class, meaning he was one, two, three, four, five at one time. That means he changed his body. He transformed his style to experience the greatest amount of victory. He held so many titles. In fact, he is so transformational that he currently holds the title of senator in the nation of the Philippines. I mean, this guy is phenomenal. I even believe that he went for the, if he went for the title of U.S. president in 2020, he'd win. Even if he's not a U.S. citizen, he'd win. I mean, he is that transformational. Manny Pacquiao is a transformational fighter. And I just want to submit to you that I believe God is calling us to be a transformational church. There is somebody else in the Bible who experienced incredible transformation. Say transformation. There's a man in the Bible who experienced great transformation. His name is Jacob. And the way he experienced with God, 
a wrestling match with God. No, they didn't put on the headgear and God didn't say, all right, let's go at it. Like, like this was a wrestling match where Jacob didn't even realize who he was wrestling until it started getting light outside and he could see. I mean, it was, it was literally a, a wrestling match that lasted all through the night. And the result of that one wrestling match was blessing, was transformation. And I believe the Lord is giving us through Jacob and Jacob was not just transformed spiritually, but the Lord changed his identity. He changed his name to Israel, and we're going to see the significance of that. So I want to just give you six important things to know about Jacob before we read about our story in Genesis chapter 32. Six important things about Jacob. The first one is this. Jacob was born to be a wrestler. Jacob was born to be a wrestler. In fact, if you look at Genesis 25 with me really quick, you're going to see this, that he even wrestled in his mother's womb, that even from the very beginning, he, uh, you're like, who did he wrestle with? His mom? No, he was a twin. There was a twin in there. His name was Esau, and Jacob and Esau started wrestling from the very beginning. If you have kids and you're just like, man, my kids do not get along, I can promise you they're not a Jacob and Esau. They didn't wrestle from the, from the moment that they were conceived. Like, I could just imagine, like, one of them just, like, bumping into the other and him looking, giving them a stink eye, and then just like putting each other in headlocks. That is what was happening in here. I'm not even kidding. Genesis 25, look how crazy the Bible is. It says this, Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebecca struggled. Everybody say struggled. The Hebrew word would mean jostled or, the, or it could also be translated to wrestled. The, the children struggled, they jostled, they wrestled with each other in her womb. Imagine what that would look like. She's probably, I mean, she's got twins, so she's probably at least out to there and there's probably just like a bunch of moving around, like she's sleeping and they're just dancing around in there. She's, and, and, and they're like, man, what is going on? Like what, what's happening, right? So she inquires about this to the Lord and she says, she went to the Lord and asked about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. And the Lord said to her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. They will be jostlers. They will be wrestlers. They will fight against each other. One nation will become stronger than the other, and your older son will serve, which was completely contrary to this culture, the older one will serve the younger one. They were, he was a wrestler. They were wrestling from the very beginning. He would eventually wrestle his brother Esau his entire life. In fact, we see that this final wrestling match happened even against God. Jacob was a fighter. He was a fighter and oftentimes wasn't the smartest of fighters. He'd pick fights he couldn't win. He'd, he'd do things he shouldn't. And he wasn't a type of fighter that we would look at and consider to be an honorable one. If anything, Jacob was the kind of guy that would go for the eyes, like the kind of fighter that you didn't, like, like he, he would cheat. Like there is a, there is a, a, a philosophy that says everything is fair in a fight, uh, and I'm not trying to give you this philosophy, but in, in the ancient Near East, the, the worst thing you could do, worse than losing, would be winning by cheating, and Jacob was the worst. In fact, his name, his name means this, one who grabs at the heel. Now, it's a, it's a name that has a double meaning. In fact, it's a literal thing that happened at his birth. In Genesis 25, we read this about him. It says, when the time came to give, he told the truth. They didn't have so. Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins, that the Lord told, he told the truth. They didn't have sonographers. They couldn't see. So the Lord told the truth. She had twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. 
So they named him Esau. They should have just named him Harry. That would have been better. (laughs) Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping at Esau's heel. He was holding on to him. It was kind of like a a barrel of monkeys. You know when they come out and there's one attached? It was literally that. He was was holding on to the heel of being the father of Harry. And fun fact, Esau uh, would would end up uh, being the father of the nation known as uh, Edom or the Edomites, the the ones who were known as the Red Ones. They were the ones who would fight with the nation of Israel forever. In fact, some historians even say that the Edomites eventually became the leaders of the region known as Idumea, who eventually became the Romans. And if you study biblical history, you see that Israel had a lot of struggles with the nation of Rome. Rome would eventually desecrate the temple. They would crucify Jesus. They would destroy the temple in 70 AD. I mean, we see that this prophecy that the Lord gave of the nation of Edom and the nation of Israel, who Jacob would become, would fight for a long time long time. But Jacob, his name means one who grabs at the heel. Look at your neighbor, grab their heel. Just kidding. Don't do that. That's awkward. One who grabs at the heel. Now, this was an expression that meant deceiver, trickster, one who deceives. Why? You ever hear the, the, the phrase, are you pulling my leg or I'm just pulling your leg? And, and that literally means like, I'm just, I'm just, teasing you, or I'm, I'm tricking you, or I'm, I'm just being a trickster. And to us, that's lighthearted. But the purpose of that was to fight in such a way that was deceptive, to come at someone when they were not looking. To grab at the heel means when, when someone is least expecting it, you are going to beat them from behind. It was another way to say deceiver. I mean, think about this. Jacob's name literally means deceiver. And if we study the word, we know that there is another who is known as the deceiver, and it's Satan. In fact, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, describes him this way. It says this, the serpent of old, speaking or applying specifically of the time in Genesis, the serpent of in other words, very Jacob, by all our intents and purposes, we could consider him from the very beginning a son, a type of, of, of sinner, a son of the devil. I would even say this. If you are someone who is deceptive or a trickster, be careful because you are assuming the number one characteristic of the enemy, deception, foolhardiness, lying, tricking. This is who Jacob was. That was the name he was given, but he would live up to the name. In fact, he would do some horrible things to his older brother Esau. There was a point where Esau was, was a hunter. Now, now Esau was a hunter-gatherer. He was a hairy guy. He was probably like, if you ever, if you ever look at the, the wrapper of the brawny toilet or, uh, paper towel guy, he looked like that. And Esau uh, looked like Mr. Clean, like minus the muscles, uh, he was, he was a smaller guy. He hung out with his mom. Uh, he was a mama's boy. He would stay home with mom and prepare the food. And Esau would go out and hunt and bring home the hunt. He would bring home the game. There was one day where Esau was gone for days hunting. He didn't find any luck. So he came home. He was famished. He was starving. And he looked at his younger brother and said, brother, can you please give me some of that stew you are making? And he looks up to his brother and he's like, hmm. I'll, I'll trade it for you. I kind of just imagine him being like Kip from Napoleon Dynamite. I'll give it to you for, for, uh, for, for your birthright. 
And Esau is like, well, what's the birthright to me? My, my father hasn't passed. And you may be asking yourself, what's a birthright? A birthright was a, a spiritual authority. The moment the father would pass, the, the older brother would have the responsibility to lead the family, to lead the clan towards or to the presence of God. They were the ones who would make legal decisions on behalf of the family. I mean, the birthright was a very important thing. And the older brother would assume it at birth. But here, here, Jacob, the deceiver, is trying to trick his brother with a bad trade and say, I'll give you a bowl of soup for that birthright. And Esau's like, well, what is, what is it to me? I'm gonna die if I don't eat. Sure, I'll trade it, it's yours. They spit their hands, they shook on it. He ate a bowl of soup. And in that moment, Jacob deceived his brother. There would come another time where Jacob would uh, deceive Esau and it happened when Isaac, their father, was at an old age. He could hardly see anymore. In fact, he was on his deathbed and Isaac, the father, he looks to Esau, his oldest son, and he says this, see that famous dish of yours? And Esau, being the good son that he is, he's like, sure, sure, dad, I'll, I'll go. So he goes out, and he says this, when you come back, I will give my blessing to you, meaning now you will have the, the material authority over everything I have. The birthright was spiritual authority. The blessing is material authority. That means everything I have is at your, in your possession. Even before I pass away, I'm, I'm giving you my blessing. It is all yours. And Esau's like, sure, Dad. So he runs out the house, grabs his bone arrow. He's ready for the hunt. Meanwhile, Jacob stays home, and he conceives a very deceptive plan. By the help and aid of his mother, Rebecca, he puts on a, a, a sheepskin around his hand. He puts on the clothes of his brother, Esau, and he smells, and now he feels like his hairy brother Esau. He walks up to his father with a bowl of soup from the goats that he had in the pen, and he says this, Here, Father, I have prepared for you a dish. Now Isaac, having horrible eyesight at the, at the time, but great ears, he's like, This doesn't sound like my son Esau. This sounds like Jacob. And he's like, No, Dad, it's, it's, me. <clears throat> it's me. It's me, Esau. And he extends his hand and he feels him. He's like, you feel like him? Let me smell you, son. And he, you, you smell like him. You must be my son. And he eats the bowl of soup. And in that moment, he gives the blessing to Jacob. Esau returns, and it's a very, very sad story. He returns and he, he's like, hey, dad, I, I got the catch for you. He's, and, and there it says that Isaac trembled in fear. And he said, I, I've, I've already given my blessing. Now, a blessing was a, 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 a legal binding covenant once you gave it away, you couldn't redact it. I mean, your word was your word. So it was, it was given to Jacob. And Esau falls to his knees and says, Twice, I have nothing. And he asks his father, Father, do you not have a, a bit of blessing you can give me? Is there not anything at the bottom of the barrel left for me? And he said, no, I gave it all to your son or to your brother, Jacob, the deceiver. He's the one who has stolen from you. He is the one who has cheated you. He is the one who, who has snuck around and deceived plans when you were doing good. He is a deceiver. And Esau turned in rage burning and set out to kill his brother Jacob. Jacob runs for his life, runs, and he goes all the way to the region where his, brother, his, his uncle is living, Laban, and he stays there and lives there for 21 years. For 21 years, he stays there and he works there and he, he tries, at this, in this time, Jacob tries to earn his way back 
to righteousness. I believe that there is something that happened there where he, I mean, we see a complete character shift in him, at least in, in intent and in his heart. He, he tries to do things better, but even at one point, uh, and I believe the reason why is because he had a taste of his own medicine when his uncle Laban said, I will give you one of my daughters if you work for me for seven years. And seven years go by, and he's like, here, you can have my daughter. But he gave him the wrong daughter. He gave him Leah, and he intentionally deceived him, gave him Leah. And this is a really weird Old Testament thing. But then the second time came around, he's like, fine, uh, I'll stay for Rachel, and I'll work for another seven years because that's the daughter that I wanted. And seven years goes by, he gives him Rachel, but he says, you can't leave until you work for me another seven years. So literally 21 years go by, and Finally, finally, Jacob has had enough taste of his own medicine, of his uncle's deceptiveness, and he's like, okay, I, I, want, I want to change. I want to be different. I, I, want, I don't want to be a deceiver anymore. The Lord speaks to him and says, it's now time for you to go back to your father's land because I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, but now I want to be the God of Jacob. So he says, go back to your old land and we will make things right. You can't run from deception. You can't run from things that you have done. The Lord will always lead you to face them. The Bible says that all truth or the truth will find you out of deception. And it comes in the form of his brother Esau. He's on his way back. And as he's, as he's making his approach to the region of Edom, because in order to get to his father's kingdom or his father's land, he needs to go through the land of Edom where his brother is currently chiefsman. And he stops at the riverbanks of Jabbok, which is literally the, the, the line, the border boundary line of, of going into this next region. And he says, hey, be, before we go in there, uh, maybe I should try to uh, deceive. Now, now, here he is. He's being a deceiver. He's being a cunning individual, a schemer. He's like, maybe I can appease my brother by giving him some gifts. I've acquired a lot of wealth in this time. Maybe if I send... Uh, my, 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 one of my wife and my kids and some gifts and then my other wife and some more kids and some more gifts and he put them in order of least favorite to favorite. Like, he's like, if they kill them, then that's all right. A lot of mouths to feed, but, but these are the ones that, I, that are near and dear. Seriously, so he sends Leah and then Zilpah and then Bilhah and then, and then finally Rachel. And, and, and he's trying, I mean, he's a schemer. He's, he's trying to work his way into his brother's good graces. He's trying to atone for all of the things he's done in a very deceptive way. And then one of the herdsmen that are in front of this parade of gifts runs back to Jacob and says, yo, Jacob, I don't think he wants these gifts. He's like, why? What's going on? He's like, I see Esau and he's got 400 men and they're on their way here to meet you. And then Jacob does the unthinkable. Let's read this really quick as we close. He says this. That night, Jacob got up, he took his wife, he took his two wives, his female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, completely emptied himself of everything he had. At this point, he is trying desperately to spare his own life but to atone for his previous deeds. He tried so hard to work his way into, into righteousness and to do some good things in the 21 years past, but now he has emptied himself of every possible scheme. So Jacob was left alone, and a man, everybody say man. This word man 
we find out that that man is a pre-incarnate physical representation of God. Now, commentators disagree. They, they're not completely aligned. They know it's God, but they wonder, they ask themselves, is this an angel of God that is speaking on behalf of God, or is this a, a pre-incarnate Jesus figure? Uh, and, and people, the verdict is out, and I would probably say that it's probably a type of Christ. It's probably Christ, uh, pre-incarnate Christ. Nonetheless, we know it's God. We know it's God. But it says that a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket. Now, you may be asking yourself, how does, how does, someone, how does God not overpower someone? Because in this wrestling match, God is not trying to destroy Jacob. He's trying to get him to tap. When God wrestles with us, you may be saying, God, why why are you hurting me? God, why why are you allowing these things to happen? Maybe you are in a a personal bout with God, and you're like, God, why, why are these things happening in my life? Listen, God is not trying to destroy you. He is not trying to, to hurt you. He's trying to get you to a position where you begin to tap and say, I can't do it on my own. I can't, I can't do it in my strength, but Jacob wouldn't tap. Relied for so long on his own wits and his own sneakiness and his own ability to, to, to get his way and be a, a deceiver, a conniver, a cunning individual that now God has him pinned and he will not tap. So what does the Lord do? He touches his hip, he gives him a limp, and he humbles him. In the middle of this wrestling match, it says this. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of his hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. They literally wrestled all night. But Jacob replied, I mean, that's how stubborn he is. He wrestled all night. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He stole a blessing in the past. He stole a birthright in the past. And now he's holding on for dear life and he's asking for it. He says, I will not let you go, God. And he knows it's God now because that's why he's asking for the blessing. I will not let you go unless you bless me. I'm not, I'm not gonna stop this fight. I'm not, I'm not gonna give up. I'm not gonna let go of you. Uh, I, I used to be, and I used to be super, super uh, deceptive and I used to be a, a liar and I used to be a cheater but, but I, I'm sick of fighting my own battles. I won't let you go until you forgive me, until you heal me, until you bless me. Then the man asked him, what is your name? What is your name? God knows his name. He's God. But the reason why God is asking his name is because he been the deceiver. I want to bless you But until you humble yourself and admit who you have been, I cannot bless you and I will not bless you. So we asked Jacob, who are you? What is your name? And Jacob, with tears rushing to his eyes, reminiscent of all the things he had done in the past, all the lying, all the stealing, all the cheating, he says, I'm I'm Jacob. I'm the liar. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the cheater. I'm the stealer. I'm the thief. I'm the... I'm the deceiver. I'm Jacob. And then from there, it says this. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. Your name is no longer deceiver. You've wrestled with me. Your name is Israel, which means overcomer. 
You have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. And he replies, why do you ask my name? In other words, you, you know who I am. And then he blessed them there. And Jacob called the place Peniel, which means it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Really quickly, as we close, really quick, I want to just give you the recipe that we see in here for transformation. The first thing is this. If you want to experience transformation, if we want to be a church that experiences transformation, we need to wrestle with God. We need to wrestle with God. You may be saying, what, what do you mean by wrestling with God? I'm not saying put on some headgear and throw your arms around God. I, I literally mean this. We need to pray. Where do we wrestle with God? In the place of prayer. That's where we get close to him. That's where he gets to tell us where we failed, where we fallen short. How do you wrestle with God? Let him interrupt your comfort. Let him disrupt. Let him discipline. And let him bring a bit of discomfort. Because the Bible tells us this in Hebrews chapter four, that God disciplines those that he loves. Don't, Don't be afraid of the Lord's correction. In fact, he is a good father and all good fathers correct their children. Don't, don't, don't run away from that. Jacob tried so hard to work his way into righteousness in the last 20 years of his encounter until his encounter with God. But it was that encounter with God, that wrestling match with God, that his identity was changed, that he was transformed. 20 years didn't even, that there are some of us in here like Jacob who have been working our bones ragged, trying to make up for our past failures and sins. And it is only time with God that can transform you. It is the only way you can go from being the deceiver to being the one that is called an overcomer. God's desire for you is to wrestle with him, to meet with him in the place of prayer. Listen, religion tells you that it's all about your ability to make things happen. But God tells us it's all about our ability to trust him to make things happen. Being with Jesus, wrestle with him. The second thing is this. So we wrestle with God in the place of prayer. Secondly, admit who you are. I love, and I never saw this until studying this passage this last week, but I love how the requirement for the blessing was for Jacob to admit his deceptiveness. God was not going to be held captive by him simply because he had him in a headlock. He wasn't going to bless him and say, okay, uncle, I submit. No, no, no. The requirement was admitting who he was, admitting that he's been the deceiver. Now, you may be saying, Pastor, I'm, I'm really, the Bible tells us this, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, that whether we've deceived once or have been deceptive our entire lives. Maybe you're currently sitting in a place where, man, you have, you have so many people, at least you think, deceived and wrapped around your finger. But you haven't deceived God. And today, his desire for you is this, to admit that you are Jacob. 
And the love of God won't keep you as a Jacob, but he will transform you. You see, Jesus was the true and better Jacob so that he can experience transformation. But Jesus, a better and a greater Jacob, would wrestle with death, not so that he would be blessed, but so that we would. Listen, we wrestle with God. We come to him at the place of prayer, but it is the faithfulness and the goodness of Jesus that transforms us. And I want to see God transform our lives, transform our church, transform our cities, our communities. But it happens by wrestling with him, by admitting who we've been, and finally, by allowing God to break us and for our ability to stay broken. Remember that God touched his hip. What we see later on is that he limped for the rest of his life, that he held on his body a physical reminder of the time where God transformed him. And now we think of a limp as weakness, but really that is just a reminder of how you are only strong in God. The world tells you to to, to cast off weakness. But the Lord tells, it to, tells us to embrace it. Because when we are weak, he is made strong. When we humble ourselves, listen, stop pretending to have everything figured out and realize that unless you bear the, the, the markings of someone who's walked with God, unless you truly humble yourself and, and expose yourself and they say, this is who I am, you cannot enjoy the benefits of your transformation. We need to wrestle with God. We need to admit who we've been and we need to stay broken before him. Let's stop pretending. Let's allow him to do the work that only he could do, the transformative work that only salvation could do, that that it's only when we are broken that God can do the transformation. I'm sick of us pretending and coming to church and painting on a face. Here's the reality. Everybody is broken. Instagram and Facebook. I wish I had that car. I wish I had that house. But if you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sick of being deceptive and I'm sick of deceiving myself. And you wrestle with him and you admit who you've been and you stay broken, he will bring transformation. I want to see lives transformed. I want people to know Jesus. And before we even reveal the name of our church, I believe God wants to bring transformation in us and you. Before we invite anybody else in the community into this place, I believe the Lord's desire is to transform you and I. So can we just take a moment? Just a moment and bow our heads and ask the Lord to Reveal to us times in our lives that we have been deceptive. Maybe today you would say, you know what, Pastor, I am a Jacob. Admittedly, I, I pretend to be an Israel when I come to church and when I'm around my family and friends, but man, deep down inside, I, I'm a deceiver. And I think if everyone was being honest, everyone's hand- speaking to us this morning. And his desire is that you would make that 
admission to yourself and to him. He knows. He knows all things. But oh, how powerful it is when we confess our sins to him. The Bible says this, that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That if we are faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive. So with every eye closed, every head bowed, if you would say, you know what, Pastor, I've, I've been guilty of being a Jacob, and I just want to confess that, try to make things right, 21 to my life, and bring transformation. I'm sick of working my way and trying to make things right, 21 years of, of working hard when I could just be wrestling with God and allow him to do the transformative work that I so desire to see. If that's your desire, if that's your admission this morning, would you just simply lift up your hands so I know who to pray for? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Hands all around. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Now, I want to ask another question. Maybe you've been following God for a long while, for a long time. And maybe going to church is a part of your your lifestyle. But you would make the admission that, you know what, Pastor, I've, I've been deceiving myself recently. My relationship with God is dry. And I paint a face every week and I pretend everything's all right, but God, I, man, God, I'm, I'm, I'm so dry right now. I want that transformational work. I want to go from being Jacob to being Israel. If that's your desire, would you just lift up your hand? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Friends, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are the one who transforms us. Lord, we want to see transformation in our lives, in our communities, in this church. It's our greatest desire. We are willing to embrace discomfort and discipline and disruption for the sake of transformation. But God, we know that it starts in the position of someone who is willing to meet with you, wrestle with you, to spend time in your presence. It comes when we admit our failures and our faults. When we make that, Father, we know that it, it happens when we allow you to break us and when we stay broken. Father, I pray that this morning, those of us that have raised our hands and all of us in this place would experience transformation like never before. That we would realize that it doesn't come from our working, but it comes from Jesus, the recipient of blessing. We receive that blessing now. It's all about you, Jesus. You love us. You care for us. Your desire and aim in this moment is not to keep us where we've been, but to take us where you're going. You have blessings for us. You have a hope for us. You have a future for us. And we embrace that by embracing you. Transform us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Can we give the Lord some praise? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your transformation. You're so good to us, God. We love you. Guys, thanks so much for coming. I'm so glad that you're here. Hey, make sure that you go up to someone today, that you encourage them, that you love them this week. We love you guys. See you next week. Take care. And that wraps up today's message, but we've got more on the way. So be sure to subscribe so you won't miss a future podcast.
You belong here, so we encourage you to get connected. You can find us on social media or online at mwcwichita.com. That's mwcwichita.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week.